Welcome to No Challenges in Raining. I am Ben Rothenberg, and it is June 17th, 2020, a day on which we heard news that seemed pretty improbable for a long time that the U.S. Open is, as of now, planning on being held in its original dates in 2020. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Katrina Adams. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I am thrilled to be here today representing the USCA Board of Directors and the USCA President, Patrick Galbraith, uh, to officially make a long-awaited and exciting announcement. The 2020 U.S. Open will be played on its regularly scheduled date here at the USCA Billie Jean King National Tennis Center, right here in New York City. In this tough and trying year, that is not just good news, it's remarkable news. What's more, in addition to hosting the U.S. Open, the NTC, We'll also this year host Cincinnati's Western and Southern Open, which will relocate here to be played the week prior to the U.S. Open. This has been an unprecedented year, racked by the COVID-19 pandemic and the racial injustice that has put a global spotlight on the Black Lives Matters movement. The USTA was particularly proud to announce the endorsement and excitement of Serena Williams, from whom they piped in this message during their press conference today. So this announcement has been on my mind all day, but ultimately I really cannot wait to return to New York and play the U.S. Open 2020. I feel like the USTA is going to do um, a really good job of ensuring like everything is amazing and everything is perfect and everyone is safe and um, it's going to be exciting. Um, it's been over six months since a lot of us have played professional tennis, so it is... Uh, I'll certainly miss the fans, don't get me wrong, just being out there in that New York crowd and hear everyone cheer, like, I'll really miss that and getting me through some of those tough matches, but um, this is crazy. I'm excited. There's still tons of questions surrounding how tennis comes back, how the U.S. Open comes back, if it's too soon, if it's possible, if the restrictions are too much, too little. We're going to get into a lot of those in an episode later this week, a roundtable episode I'm going to have with a few regular NCR regular journalist friends returning and talking about these things. But for this episode, I want to bring back a guest we had on the show a couple months earlier, Mark Ein, who is the owner of the City Open Tournament in Washington, which as we speculated it might be back when he was on the show in April, it's suddenly in the position to be the first ATP tournament back on the calendar. The City Open is now in that August 10th week, which is the first week confirmed back on the ATP calendar. And so there's a lot of opportunity and also a lot of challenges that come with being first for Mark Ein and the Washington tournament. So to talk about what it'll be like to be the first one to have tour-level tennis on the ATP come back after tennis gets out of its hibernation, out of its quarantine, here is a conversation I had today with Mark Ein. I'm delighted to be rejoined on No Challenges Remaining by Mark Ein, the owner of the City Open Tournament in Washington. Mark, thanks for coming back on. Appreciate it. Always great to talk to you, Ben. As we talked about in sort of much more speculative sense back in April, I think when we last talked, there was a possibility then that Washington could be the first tournament 
that could come back from when the tours resume from the coronavirus stoppage. And that made me felt pretty optimistic at the time. But now, at least as of June 17th recording this, the provisional schedule is out for the ATP and WTA tours. And on the ATP schedule, right, the first event scheduled back, looking much more official, is Washington now. So how does it feel to have that sort of uh, that moment? And, and how what has the journey been like to uh, to get there over the last since we last heard from you, basically? Yeah, it's been an incredible several months since we last talked. I think my optimism back then might have been my my entrepreneurial optimism, and then reality uh, and and a whole lot of obstacles got thrown in you know our face. But obviously, there's a lot of people and businesses in the world that are facing a lot worse. But you know, to get to the point where you can get everyone comfortable that you can host a tennis event safely and be the first one in the world takes a huge amount of work and a huge amount of collaboration with a lot of people. And we're thrilled. We're thrilled for the sport to be able to let players have an opportunity to get back to compete and make money and earn ranking points. We're really thrilled for our community. And, you know, just to give people something to look forward to, this has been a hard year for our community, the country and the world. And, you know, hopefully getting back to tennis in some form gives people something to look forward to. As these things have changed, obviously, I know you're, you have to be talking against with the tours, with USTA, with, with the city of Washington, or who has been the sort of main collaborators to get to this point? Yeah, I mean, you just named a lot of the main ones. So yeah. the two tours, the USTA has been great. The tours have been great. Um, the city of Washington has been incredibly uh, supportive in collaborating with us to develop a, a, a really detailed plan uh, for, for how we do this safely. Our medical provider at MedStar, which is a large healthcare company in our region, has been the partner of the event for a long time and has a lot of experience around the world in sports, uh, has been terrific. Our sponsors, a number of them have stepped up, even though they don't have the usual hospitality opportunities they did, but they wanted to get behind it. Um, so it's it really has been an incredible collaboration amongst a lot of stakeholders. And you know what you realize in tough times is fortunately in in virtually in most of the cases people's really good side comes out and people Mm. get inspired to try to you know collaborate and create something you know good even if it means they have to compromise and there's endless examples of of those kind of compromises people made to enable us to do this so when we talked last time uh remember you hopefully breaking down the possibilities for what city open would be like in sort of four scenarios the first one was the tournament goes on as if nothing changed. The second one is playing with reduced number of people on site, uh, drastically reduced number of people on site, probably. Third is playing with, uh, you know, no fans at all and just players, maybe essential personnel. And the fourth was the tournament not happening at all. So we've heard, I think, a lot from U.S. Soap, and they're talking about having definitely no fans, possibly reducing numbers of people allowed in player entourages and things like that on site. And fewer ball kids and fewer line judges and things like that. Where is where is uh, City Open right now in terms of what sort of scenario you guys are currently looking at? Well, we've eliminated two of the four options. So yeah. We've eliminated the bookends, and now we're focused on the two in the middle. And the one that we're planning on is no fans. Um, and just given the current broader set of rules in the city of Washington, which are pretty consistent for most of the conservative jurisdictions in the country. And I'm, I'm glad to live in a conservative jurisdiction because I think what we see around the world is that places where people 
have been conservative that you really get the virus under control and then actually it lets you get back to normal life yeah. quicker. So conservative meaning cautious in this case. You mean. Cautious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Cautious meaning that you don't op- you open up more slowly yeah. uh, and more cautiously. And, and that's where our city is. And I think that's a good thing. And so given the current set of rules where we're going planning and assuming no fans now, they've already outlined not just for us, but more broadly that as the numbers decline, there's a next phase of reopening, which would allow a certain amount of, of more people on a, in a certain location. And if we can get to that place without any adjustments at all, um, us and others could actually have a small, but some number of people come. Um, and we're talking to them about what that would look like. So um, I, we really, really hope we can do it. There's so many people that I want to have a chance to be part of this. Um, we have... We have families that have had tickets to this event for decades um, and a long time ago renewed and to come back. There are sponsors who have helped us. And then uh, we really want to use the event to spotlight some of the heroes in our community hmm. over the last um, you know, three or four months. And so I'd love to give them an in-person opportunity to do that. Uh, we'd also, and we'll, we're thinking of a lot of ways also to continue the dialogue around some of the harder um, issues that have been surfaced in our country. And I think being able to do more on site will be helpful. If we can't do it on site, we're going to try to do the same spotlighting heroes and continuing some of the dialogue on some of the harder issues on social platforms and on, you know, TV and others, but it would be, it would be enhanced obviously if we could enable people to come. And so I really hope we can get there, but in the end, that's really just determined by the virus and where it is in our city when, uh, the event comes around. Right. And it's, I guess, I guess there's still, we can get to this more later, but I think just to hint at this now, there's still, you know, a lot of uncertainty about, we're basically recording this when it's still about two months until the event starts. So yeah. I guess a lot can change for better and worse in those two months that you can adjust. Yeah, a lot, a lot can, I mean, hopefully the trend in our city has been really, in our region has been really positive. You know, look, my personal feeling on this is that in, in this coronavirus has impacted a lot of our businesses in different ways. Um, and so we, we think about this every day from a lot of perspectives is that, you know, obviously in many cities in America, there were massive mass gatherings around protests. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people wearing masks, some not, I think you can't, you have to wait. And then there's been some reopening. So yeah. you need to give two to three weeks and then you see if that had an impact or not. If those kinds of things had an impact and that's a setback on the contrary, if the reopening and some of those gatherings do- doesn't lead to a surge, I think it really gives people confidence that you can go the next steps. And so we'll know a lot more, I, all of us in the country in a couple of weeks, um, and that'll help guide us. Definitely. A, a lot of people domestically and internationally have seen the U.S. as being, you know, I think fairly at epicenter of the of the COVID outbreak and pandemic. And uh, D.C. has not been hit as hard as some places in the U.S., certainly not as much as New York, for example, uh, but there's still, you know, coronavirus in the D.C. area and, and in the U.S. more largely. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious from that point, how you sort of convince players from especially overseas players that it's sort of safe to come and play in the U.S. and in Washington, which is a decision they'll all have to make individually regarding yeah. Washington and regarding, obviously, U.S. Open and other tournaments. I guess right, yeah. right now it's just those two sort of blocks is the D.C. and New York block. Yeah. So there, I have a couple of things on this. First of all, uh, since word started getting out that we may host the event, we've literally been inundated with calls, text, and uh, emails from players and their agents wanting to come. So hmm. 
I think that we'll have an incredible player field. I obviously also still own the Castles and World Team Tennis, and yeah. I saw what happened there, which is as soon as they announced that they were playing and they're doing a three-week bubble in West Virginia, it was incredible the amount of players who wanted to play. And so what's very clear is tennis players love to compete. They need to make money. And on tour, they get ranking points. And so the vast majority of players are dying to get back. So I feel really good that we're going to have a really good player field. I think the a level of health and safety protocols we have and the U.S. Open, on one hand, obviously, you know, it, it makes players realize it may not be quite the same experience or it may not be as fun, yeah. may not have the same freedom. The flip side is that you can feel like you're going to be safe. And so I think that's the positive side. And then just as it relates to D.C., D.C.'s never been a hot spot. The numbers have gotten better. Part of that's because the city and the mayor have led with a conservative, cautious approach. Um, and so I think they should feel really good about about being in D.C. I, I'll just say, again, personally, <laughs> I saw actually last night on Twitter a graph of like our cur- America's curve versus foreign countries. I think it was Italy, France, and Spain. And there's, mm-hmm. you know, they had the surge and it went down and it's getting close to zero. And we had a surge and it came down. It's kind of flat. And I, I literally want to say, come on, America. We can yeah. do better than this. Yeah, no, America, America's not been impressive writ large here. For no, sure. no. And it's just so disappointing because it's so short term because you just stay in lockdown a little bit longer. And then look what happens in New Zealand where they're playing rugby matches in full stadiums. So yeah. you actually take the medicine, no pun intended, but seriously, take it seriously, get it under control. And then you can get back to real life. If you don't do it, you're just going to be stuck in this in between place, which is the worst. So I I think the thing is, is when you look at even individual jurisdictions in the United States, it's going to be the same thing. The jurisdictions that have taken the more cautious approach and been more restrictive are going to see those curves where the disease continues to go down and the places that open up and are more liberal they're going to continue to grow. And when people look at where we are in D.C., I think they realize it's a good place to come play. I would agree with that, too. I think it's just it's just sort of I think people from the outside seeing, I was, you know, hearing from Australian. So obviously they're one of the countries that's had the least amount of outbreak and they have different, obviously, if geographic advantages and isolation and things like that. But looking at the U.S., yeah, I think it's just sort of especially you now the WTA calendar is starting back in Palermo is the first thing on their calendar. It's just sort of ironic that Italy and the U.S. are the first two countries that are where tennis is ramping back up after the specific issues those two those two have had. You mentioned sort of the we've alluded to the bubble that, that's happening with the U.S. Open, where they're having they're trying to put as many players as possible into a couple official hotels in New York and keep their entourages there too, and have sort of a very close circuit uh, that the players operate in to try to keep sort of health isolation as much as possible. Are you guys planning something similar with, uh, with Washington in terms of lodging and, and transport and things like that to keep, to keep people in a pretty, in a pretty closed, uh, loop? Yeah. As I mentioned at the start, there's been really close collaboration with the ATP, the WTA and the USTA. Um, and we've all also shared what we've learned from other sports leagues. So all the leagues have manuals and teams and, our event has a manual and the USA has a manual, and they're all based on the same principles. Um, there are differences based upon the jurisdiction and the specifics of the event. Um, for a variety of reasons, I think the USTA may be you know, a notch or two more restrictive. Um, first of all, their hotel is more removed, so that's a big thing, um, whereas ours is going to be in the city. Uh, New York has a different set of rules out of necessity. Their event is also just a lot bigger on site, so... 
it's just different in that way. But the core principles are very similar. And, and the idea isn't none of us want to do this, but we all want to make sure everyone's safe. And so based upon all the experts that we all consult, doing some version of this is the right way to do it. So it involves a lot of testing. Um, and then there's the, there's the actual testing and then there's a temperature testing and there's questionnaires. There's some, you know, trying to, re- well, definitely keeping distance and trying to restrict some of the activities people do trying to have a limited number of people on site. And, um, and so that's the core of all the plans. I, I do think, I do think ours may be, a, a, again, a, a notch or two less restrictive, but it's all changing quickly. I mean, the USTA announced today too, that people can go get private houses. They don't have to stay at the hotel. So, mm. you know, that that's indicative right there. And, and no one's talking about armed guards at the hotel, but they're also saying that, you know, if you, if you, if you go and you do leave, then you're going to get tested more often. So it, it's a similar approach. That's one of the things I, that's actually the question I asked on the press conference was, was how with the USDA yeah. had earlier today, which is how strict they're going to be in terms of watching people's movements around the city. Yeah. And if, you know, a hitting partner goes out clubbing or something, what that means yeah. for their player or anything like that. You went, you went, you went straight, you went straight to the dating app question. I did. You know, I've seen, I've was seen, that based I, on some kind of like, I have seen tennis, <laughs> I have seen tennis players and their teams in action at cities around the world. I know how the social environments operate. And I think especially in New York is a city where people from, you know, around the world look forward to sowing their wild oats more than most to say. Uh, I'm curious, you mentioned testing, how much, uh, what kind of, do you have to have testing protocols already in, in mind? Yeah, we do. I mean, again, we've partnered with MedStar, who's really wor- who's world class, and they have deep expertise in COVID, and they've cl- they've been involved in a bunch of the other sports, um, and so we have a bunch of protocols. But we're also all trying to iterate because the t- technology's changed. You know, what you're trying to do is have the easiest test that you can administer most often that gets the results quickest and that's accurate, and that's changing very quickly. I mean, you know, still. The best is the nasal swab that goes pretty deep, tested in an official lab. We're not talking about those little instant things that don't seem to work very well. Um, And so that's what we're going to use. But there's new technology on saliva testing, which I think the NHL is going to use. It's a lot easier and is Mm. similarly accurate. And so I, I anticipate just seeing the pace of change. And again, we follow this for a lot of virtually all of our business, but some are right in the sweet spot that... My bet is by the time we get there, it'll be something different and better. It won't be more accurate. It'll just be easier and quicker. But we're planning on using what's available today. And if it can get better, that's great. Obviously, they combined this, the locations of Cincinnati and the U.S. Open to be on one site at the Billie Jean King Tennis Center yeah. in New York. And Washington will be its own site. I think people who are not familiar with American Geography International listeners, Washington, D.C. and New York are very pretty close together. It's like 200 miles apart like a four or five hour drive. Uh, do you guys, I guess, already have sort of, I, this, I think you've done this even with Canadian tournaments before, but a way to, yeah. I would think it'd be pretty easy to plan a sort of shuttle of some kind, whether it's in individual cars or on sparsely yeah. filled buses or something between these two cities for, for players. Yeah. So I would think that'd be pretty easy. I mean, I think that's one of the great virtues is that DC has three international airports. There's massive amount of flights come through DC from yeah. all countries around the world. And then you come to DC, you play a tournament, you get a shot to compete for the first time in five months, same surface, same everything. You get used to the environment and the protocols, which I also think will be an advantage for players who do that rather than mm-hmm. starting in New York. 
Um, and then, as you said, it's a couple hundred miles away. It's you said four or five. For me, it's three and a half or four. I guess it depends who's driving. <laughs> three and a half is, is <laughs> to get all the way to Queens in three and a half would, would be a I good, didn't say good that. Effort. I guess Staten Island. <laughs> yeah, it depends where in DC and where in New York. Yeah, exactly. But, but it's it's a relatively short drive. There's regular trains. There's a lot of commercial flights, and then yeah, we usually help. Last year we flew the people who were here on our final day to Canada together and we'll probably do the same again this year just to help people with that. But it's incredibly easy. I mean, it's a, it's a very easy trip and we think that's going to be a lot of the appeal. If you're going to do those two events, you, it, hard to imagine it doesn't make sense to do the, our event too. I, w- I would think so. And oh, that's a, it's an interesting sort of change in the calendar, obviously, because you guys are not usually right before New York or Cincinnati in this case. You usually have Canada in between. So a little bit of a, yeah. a reshuffle there. We I mentioned the ATP calendar. And it's just, just for, for clarity for people listening. If they've seen the WTA calendar that came out today has currently a TBD or TBA listed uh, in the week where Washington is happening. What's What's the WTA status for people? Yeah, so we've been working really closely with the WTA, and we just couldn't get all the details worked out in time to make it official today. And so we decided to make it a TBD. We continue to talk to them. We're committed to having women in in you know our week. We want it to be a WTA event. If it's not, we might try to figure something else out. But I really hope it's a WTA event. We're working closely with them. Uh, we just couldn't get it all worked out today. You know, as I said. To, to bring this together takes a lot of uh, collaboration and compromising amongst a lot of people. Um, and so we've just got to get it over the hump. Are, are there different challenges that come with WTA that make it at all slower than ATP or different? It's, uh, it's a different tour. So, yeah, it's different. And there's a lot of similarities, a lot of collaboration between them, in addition as with us. Um, and then our structure is a little bit different because we actually don't own the sanction. We lease the sanction. So that introduces some another party. Um, and yeah, and the economics are different, are very different. And so there's just, it's just a different set of things. And we, you know, we, we're really close, but it's just, it's not done. And so we didn't want to announce it. So, somewhat sidebar topic, but I'm curious as somebody who is, is, owns this joint event, or at least as part of the joint event, I guess, wherever you want to phrase it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what have What have you thought of the of the sort of merge talk that's emerged over the, since we last spoke? Well, I think the underlying rationale makes a ton of sense. The underlying rationale is that you know men's and women's tennis don't compete with each other. Tennis competes for attention with the rest of the sports world, and people there is a lot of value to scale. Um, and selling two things together, whether it's the media rights, the sponsorship, actually is more valuable because the, the thing you see in a lot of businesses and a lot of industries is a lot of times people don't want to piece together a bunch of small relationships. If you can deliver them everything they want in one, they prefer it and they'll pay more for it. It's better for them. And so that's the underlying rationale um, for why it would make sense. And I'm glad that I, I think one of the great things about tennis is that it's a sport where men and women are treated largely equally, where there's incredible opportunities for women. Um, and that's great for players, for young people, fans, like the whole bit, the whole thing is better because of it. And so the closer that people can work together and if it becomes official, I think that's fantastic. So the concept's great. I think obviously the devil's in the details and how you make it work and, 
you know, at some points in history, the men's tour pretty clear, you know, has, you know, generates more revenues and, and everything else. But, you know, you have to remind people that there's been points where in time where it was the reverse. And so for something like this to happen, people would have to take the long view. You need to be really clever in the structuring. But it is a case where one plus one is going to equal something more than two, whether it's three, four, five or six is to be determined. But if what you can do is have one plus one equal something more than two, then there should hopefully be a way that you can make something like that work. And I think it'd be really interesting. With this first opportunity, I think we've sort of alluded to this before, and you mentioned the player interest. Are you trying to sort of aim, you know, for players who have not previously come to Washington to be here, like, you know, your Nadal's, your Djokovic's, your Serena's, or anything like that to get to Washington? Is that is that possible that, you know, just being first, you could sort of have this field? And obviously the Washington field's been very strong recent years yeah, also, we, we but... But even even you know beyond that, just the first first week of the year, I'm thinking like a Brisbane always gets amazing fields beyond its yeah. sort of tier, and Washington yeah. could be in a similar position potentially in the calendar with that first mover advantage. I would think that there's a reasonably high chance that that could happen based on some of the conversations we're having. I don't, without specific names, I there is a lot of interest from people who traditionally haven't played it because they want to start playing tournaments again, and so I think. I think there's a really good chance uh, that that is the case. And as you said, our the field's just gotten better and better and better every year. And last year was amazing. Um, and I think this year could be better still. And it's also, you know, it's a unique year where we're the only event in the world uh, on both sides as well, which will further increase the quality of the field. I, I will tell you, I got a call from a player I won't name who's ranked in the fifties in the world on the men's side, who I know who called and said, will you save a wild card for me? And we have a 48 draw, which is, you know, it's uh, eight qualifiers, I think mm-hmm. eight qualifiers and I think four wild cards. So if you just did the math, you know, you'd get into the deep into the, if everyone played, you get in the thirties. I mean, you look, usually look at that and say somebody's in the fifties should feel pretty good about getting into that tournament. And they're saying, I don't know that I'm going to, because I think everyone's going to play. I thought that was interesting. Definitely. Yeah. Usually the cut for Washington's like around 70 something or 80 generally. Yeah. And this person's mid fifties. Yeah. That's no word. So that's, you know, we'll see. It'll be, we'll see what happens. Have have you been following the events that have popped up in the exhibition type events that have popped up in Europe the last couple while? And I'm curious, curious what you've made of, of the two different approaches seeing the more toggle event, the, the ultimate tennis showdown, I think it's yeah. called UTS. And then yeah. which has been much more closed. And then the, the Adria cup the, the Djokovic event, which has been, you know, sort of swarming <laughs> with people and no social distancing in sight that you can, anyone can see. Um, I'm curious what you, what you've made of those and, and if they've been at all instructive in any direction for you, for what you want your event to look like. Yeah, how can I get that kind of crowd that they got in Novak's event in Washington? <laughs> That's my first thing. And how do I not throw a player party? I think those were the two things that I got from them. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was amazing when you were watching Novak's thing. But it, look, it goes back to also what what we talked about before, which is that, you know, that is a country where they took tougher measures and the disease is a lot less prevalent. So. It, that wasn't Novak's call. That was the country who enabled them to do that, just like in New Zealand. And so it was, but it was stark to watch, to see that kind of crowd. You were wondering if it was live or a tape. Um, yeah, it was jarring to see that in 2020 to realize that's happening somewhere. After, yeah, it's, exactly. it's just incongruous with our existence currently. It, exactly. But that's what happens, actually, if, as a country, 
that you decide to take this incredibly seriously, then you can get to that point eventually, even before there's a vaccine. And so I applaud him. Obviously, he had great players. Players looked like they were really into it. It was great to watch. I loved seeing the great players. And so, uh, you know, hats off to that event. It was great to see. And Patrick's event, too. I've talked to Patrick a bunch, uh, you know, through his thinking on this and the origins and his his thesis, which is totally right, is that the core tenant, tennis court demographic every 10 years gets 10 years older, which just basically means, you know, today it's 61 and 10 years ago is 51 and 10 years before it's 41. And that's something that people in the sport talk about all the time. And it is totally true. And if we don't find a way to engage younger people who consume content and sports differently, then the sport's going to die. And I, hats off to him and using his platform. And he and I have talked a lot. You know, we own an esports team that we started two years ago. And a lot of the presentation of the match, it, is a, it takes off from esports with the casters in the sidebar, the graphics, the speed of it, naming play, giving players nicknames. I mean, that is, it looks like tennis version of esports. And good for him for doing that. I think it's great. It's great for people to see. I think some of the innovations were fun and interesting. Obviously, I've spent 12 years doing team tennis, which is also different in its own ways. One of the things I have come to appreciate from team tennis is you have to be really careful where you want to innovate on the things that actually matter, but then not innovate for the sake of innovating and not look gimmicky, you know? Mm. Um, and there's things that are fun and interesting that to me can kind of cross the line a little bit. And you just have to find that balance right. And we, we dealt with that in team tennis over the years in different ways and trying to figure that out. You know, Patrick kind of threw the kitchen sink. All the clever ideas are there. I think probably over time, probably we'll pair some back, maybe add a few. But but I'm I you know I think it's great to try different things and and figure out how to be attractive to new and younger demographics. Does this opportunity of possibly having no or very few fans in your in your stands allow <laughs> for any sort of experimentation for you guys? I mean, I don't know if you're doing things like crowd noise. Have you thought about that yet? Or if you're doing you know, sort of piped in applause, I mean, or if you're doing, uh, I don't know, different sorts of graphics or different having players wear headset interviews or I don't know what other kind of other kind of things that sort of like, obviously you're restricted, yeah. but in other ways you have a lot more freedom in this sort of unique moment. So I'm curious yeah, if you're so, thinking that way. Well, we, we have given it a lot of thought and we're still working on it. And uh, obviously there's a lot of other people experimenting. They're piping in crowd noise, at least on the broadcast on Patrick's thing. And I think it is helpful. Um, I, I do think when I watch the earlier versions of some of the events, uh, which I also applaud everyone for doing, but the ones that have no fans and no noise, you actually do feel like you lose a bit of the energy. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you got to be really careful not. I think people will lose uh, attention if you don't compensate for that. So we have a whole bunch of things that we're thinking about. Nothing's been finalized in <laughs> We do have one of our challenges in our stadium every year is how to get our car sponsor room to showcase cars. That's not an issue anymore. So that was one of the things we've already realized. But, you know, you definitely want it to be visually and audibly, and, uh, audibly uh, interesting and engaging and bring some energy. And so we're spending a lot of time thinking about how we're going to do that. How about this idea? It just this is free. Yeah. If, if you if you park like twenty sponsor cars around the court, and then you have fans sit inside the cars and just watch like a drive-in movie theater, just watch through their windshield <laughs> and be socially isolated from each other within their own cars. Yeah. 
So that's I appreciate that thought. If you want to come work in sponsorships for us, you're more than welcome to to join us because we need that kind of creativity. Um, you know, obviously they did in the Del Rey tournament. They always had a car on the court. I think champion Porsche, and they would have fans sitting there, yeah. which I always loved. So we've talked about we have talked about it in the past. We didn't, and we have talked about the ability to add a lot more to add cars in the stadium, which we haven't been able to do because we've tried to pack in people. Um, so maybe we will combine that this year. It's a good. It's a good thought. Last I'll leave a big red one for you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, you think you alluded to it when you're talking about the moments that America's going through. Washington tournament obviously has a, uh, a history of you know being. I think Arthur Ashe was sort of one of the drivers behind the creation of the tournament 50 years ago, 50 plus years ago now. He wanted intentionally in a very sort of mixed, racially diverse area of DC and 16th Street, which it still is. And I'm curious how you're thinking about how the you you mentioned this before. I'm just curious if you can go back into it, how the tournament might be able to sort of reflect this moment in America, or if you know, yeah. go further into what you were sort of hinting at. Yeah, that. yeah. So that is so. Arthur Ashe was the co-founder of the tournament with Donald Dell and John Harris. So he was deeply involved, and it was largely his vision to play this tournament in a public park. Um, and again, that's been woven into the mission of this event for 52 years. And I inherited it last year, but it's something that I deeply believe in and will carry forward. So, and I think it's really important for us to use this platform this year um, in a productive way to continue this dialogue that's going on in our country and find the right way to do it. We have a bunch of ideas we're exploring, some of which I'm really excited about, but aren't ready to be talked about. And, you know, you saw what Patrick did at his where... Uh, coaches and players wore Black Lives Matter shirts. Um, so I think there's, again, these these are very, these are platforms with big reaches, especially given the, the well, especially given the global audience on in a regular year, I think this year it's going to be, or, you know, way bigger. And so just figuring out the right ways to do that is what we're in the process of doing, but we, but it's something that we're spending a lot of time thinking about. So there's nothing specific yet, but just know that people will see a lot. And we've talked to our broadcast partners about also making sure we weave that in. So, and and then also just also, again, you know, there, there's a lot of heroes in all of our communities, the people on the front lines of the COVID crisis. And I, you know, have deep appreciation, admiration for the people who went to the hospital every day at their own risk. And MedStar has a lot of those people. Again, it'd be the best would be to have them be able to come on site and enjoy the tennis. But even if they can't tell their stories on our social platform, maybe virtually meet and greets with players, you know, on TV. So we're trying to think about ways also to recognize those folks who've been so important to all of us during this tough year. Yeah. Last thing, I guess, just because we probably will not have you back on the show before the tournament mm-hmm. is at the start. Uh, appreciate I'm always happy to. Uh, well, happy to, maybe I'll take that back already. But I'm just curious, yeah, okay. what sort of what are the most important things for you in the next, you know, seven eight weeks as you ramp up to the tournament? What are you most what is most important to get done? What are the biggest challenges? What are the poten- biggest potential variables? You know, that could come up in in terms of preparing for this event. What do you? Yeah. What, what, what's next? What lies ahead? As far as you can tell. Well. I will say after we made this official, you know, we were made this official last night. There, I did have a little bit of the feeling of the dog who caught the ambulance. Yeah. Like, oh no, what do we do? Because there's an, a massive amount to do in a, you know, now less than two months. And 
usually we would be, you know, we would be much further along. I mean, we've done a ton of planning, but now we've got to pull the trigger on things. So the first thing is just to continue to, um, is just to fully develop the health and safety plan and make sure we're on top of that. I feel very good about that, but there always is work to do there. We have to continue to collaborate with the city. We actually don't have the final, final permits yet for that. So we have to get that done. Okay. Um, and then, and then a huge amount of, I want to put a huge amount of time into how do we make this a great experience for players, even with the constraints. And so there's just a lot to do there. Um, we're talking about a lot of things, but I want the players to have a good experience. So that's a big piece of it. Um, and then how do we make this good for our other stakeholders, sponsors and fans, both if we can't bring anyone and then if we can. It's obviously easier if we can bring some people on site. So if we can't, how can we do it? But, you know, one of the things, Ben, and you know this, is that players make a commitment when they play an event. They do a couple hours of fan they have a commitment to, to spend a couple hours during the week on fan engagement things. Right. And so obviously there won't be anything to do in at the site. So we're planning to use all of that to do. I mean, it's an incredible amount of time that we can use for fans and others through virtual player meet and greets, you know? Um, and so I, there's a, there's a lot to do there to make sure that our longstanding fans and our supporters also feel engaged as part of this. So there's a lot to do across the board to make sure that it's a world-class experience for everyone. I think the job tonight for our team and me is to get some sleep and then yeah. we'll start tomorrow and, uh, and get back at it. Well, rest up. A lot of work ahead for you for sure. <laughs> exciting times. Uh, yeah. Strange, exciting times. Uh, yeah. but, uh, best of luck to you guys going forward. Yeah. Thanks. Always great to be with you, Ben. So thank you very much to Mark. And as I said, there will be a roundtable discussion of other U.S. Open issues and tennis comeback issues and Adria Cup and all those sorts of things later this week. In the meantime, I want to thank you guys for listening, especially to our Patreon backers, the Slam Champ level backers, of which are Susanna W., Jonathan Weinbaum, Liz Kinnell, Mary Carrillo, Betty and Chuang Nguyen. We also want to thank our GOAT backer, J.O.D. If you want to join them and support us on Patreon, it helps us out a ton as our normal work has ceased this year. You can do so at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. You can get lots of, I think there's five Patreon exclusive episodes we've done so far on there for you to enjoy. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. Leave us reviews on your podcast catcher of choice, whether it's iTunes or podcast app or something else. Those help other people find NCR as well. And if you have a friend you think would like NCR, tell them, hey, listen to NCR. It's neato. If you, if you do feel that, if you don't feel that, please don't be insincere with your friends. They deserve, they deserve better. I think that's about it. See you guys soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>